What does it take to build a movement that's truly led by families? Today, many in philanthropy say they believe in movement building. Marguerite Casey Foundation has been committed to it with a clear strategy for two decades. It is at the core of the foundation's mission to nurture a national movement of low-income families advocating on their own behalf for economic and social justice. This is The Revolution Will Be Local, a movement-building podcast. Ed Sherna is the Equal Voice Network's network weaver and a veteran organizer and grassroots leader. In this episode, Ed talks about the critical role of networks in collaboration and movement building among the 18 organizations and constituencies in the network, and how the network supports movement building across issues, regions, race, ethnicity, and egos. I'm Ed Cherna, and I am a community organizer, and I am the weaver for the Marguerite Casey Foundation, working in Chicago with the Chicago Equal Voice Network. So my job really is to um, build a network that could be working as one, even though we're composed of 18 different organizations. What I like to say is we build the ballpark so that people could play the ball game, but we don't play the ball game. So the weaver is not someone that leads. It's someone that knits the organizations together. But the organizational members, the people in the communities, are the ones that should be determining what it is that they need in their community. What I did was start to bring those networks together and what the Weaver position did that no other position was able to do is cross network boundaries, bring coalitions together that had not worked with one another, and bring them into a room where we start to at least share what it is that we're doing. It was a long process of people getting to know each other. In many ways, they could have been competing with one another because In the nonprofit world, there's limited money, and people compete for that money. And so I think there was a a natural reason in many ways not to work with one another. But because we were all funded by the same foundation, that mandate made it so that groups came because they knew the funder would like them to come. And then in coming together, they started to build a connection with one another. The network is composed, I would say, of 18 individual groups. In those groups, there are collections of groups. So like there's the grassroots collaborative that's made up of maybe seven or eight organizations and a couple unions. There's the Illinois Coalition for Refugee and Immigrant Rights, which is made up of organizations across the state that deal with immigrants. There's the People's Lobby, which is composed or had been composed a lot of churches in African-American and Latino neighborhoods. There's Communities United, which is composed of youth in different communities across the city. So these were networks, pre-existing networks. And the challenge was, how do we get them to start working with one another? And they'll work with one another if they trust one another. So we travel at the speed of trust. And where it's strong, we go fast. Where it's weak, we go slow. We make sure that people uh, do one-on-ones with one another to break down some walls, to see commonalities. The other way that it's done is through shared self-interest. You know, each of these organizations has an agenda that they pursue because it's going to help the communities they come from. And we realize that we share some similar agendas. One of the key agendas that we share is around gentrification. And gentrification has different faces. So 
certain neighborhoods are gentrifying, which means obviously housing costs are going up. Other neighborhoods have returning citizens. These are people that have been incarcerated. They're coming back to their neighborhoods, and they're getting reintegrated into the neighborhoods. There's other neighborhoods that have seen a loss of people because the schools have, there were like 50 schools that closed over the course of several years, and they were in predominantly neighborhoods of color. There was a lot of change in all these neighborhoods. You might not call it gentrification, but people were leaving for a variety of reasons, because of schools, because of immigration, because of incarceration. And so we started to tell our story, and we realized our stories had similar features. The big feature was we'd like to stay where we are, but there's a lot of pressures in society to break us apart. And for the first time, people started to see we're talking about the same thing. Chicago is losing population in the African-American community and in the poorer parts of the city for various different reasons. And so we started to realize that this is an area that we could work collectively on. And working together on joint issues is one way to break the walls down. There's an inherent ability to just look at our own neighborhood and think of our own problems in isolation. And the network causes people to hear what's going on in other neighborhoods and realize that there's some similarities. And then you start talking about what could we do jointly? What could we be doing that we haven't thought of? We have um, another study that was done this time on the loss of African-Americans to the city of Chicago. And we're going to look at it neighborhood by neighborhood and see where people are leaving. We're going to look at where they're going. And we're going to start asking what we can do in order to turn this around. Then you have to build an agenda, a joint agenda, but the people that make the final decisions are the residents of the community. You know, the the two biggest wins in most recent memory are the statewide minimum wage increase, which was a multi-year win that everybody was involved in across the state and, and with a large chunk from Chicago. And the most recent win is the win to change the constitution of the state of Illinois so that we could get rid of a flat tax and get a a graduated state income tax. Now, when I say it's a win, what we want is to get it on the ballot coming this next November. We feel that if we get the graduated income tax, there will be roughly three to four billion extra dollars that could be used for social services and schools. But it took us eight to 10 years to get to the point where both of these are becoming a reality. And one we passed, and the other, it's going to be on the ballot. And now we, the majority of the organizations, the network, are now getting resources to educate people in their communities about the need for a fair tax. Last Saturday, there were 200 people in a room, and we started to identify what those monies could be used for. In the last administration, there were a lot of cuts in social services. There were cuts for homeless benefits. There were cuts for schools. There were cuts for any kind of social services that benefit low- to middle-income people. If the law is passed, we would advocate for where that money would then be used. We don't want to just say we need a graduate income tax. We need a graduate income tax going to go to schools and social services and help the people that need it the most. I think that networks are essential to movement building. Movements are created 
they're not spontaneous. When you look at the civil rights movement, there was the SCLC, there were other organizations, there was the church organizations, there was the fodder that created the potential for something bigger than the existing organizations. But you have to start with some kind of organized entity that could be disciplined enough to be able to produce the numbers that are necessary, and you hope that during the course of it, something bigger than the sum and total of the parts happens. Back a number of years ago, I'll give an example, we had a campaign for driver's license for undocumented people. And we had done our homework. We were going to have a big rally, and we were going to have 4,000 people fighting for driver's license. When we had the rally at the Federal Plaza, there were 12,000 people that came to the rally. That meant there was triple the amount. But we knew we would have 4,000, but those 4,000 were so excited by this that they went out and produced the other 8,000. Now, it was years before that became reality. It was another five years before we actually passed driver's licenses at the state level. But it's an example of existing organizations producing a certain number of people, and it catches wind and it builds, and it excites people, and they see something bigger, and it starts to draw on the unorganized people, and together you create a movement. So we received some funding from the Marguerite Casey Foundation two years ago, I think, to register um, new voters. Fourteen organizations of the 18 took the money, and we had two tiers. We had one tier which said that they had to register 500 voters, but they had to have conversations with 1,500 people. And the second tier had to register 250 voters, but they had to have conversations with 750 people. And when we collected all of these registrations, we had over 22,000 new registrants. It was greater than the sum of all the work that we thought we would do. And we were purposefully going after people that had not been registered before, people that had been hard to register. It was very successful, and it helped us build on what we're going to be doing this year around fair tax, where we also have some resources, and we have bigger numbers to go after to educate people about the value of a graduated tax. So what we did a couple of years ago, it was the foundation for what we're able to do now. Luce is the CEO of the Marguerite Casey Foundation. She was the first one, and she's the one that had the vision that brought it to her board that they're going to fund movement activities. They are going to fund low-income communities across much of the United States, and they are going to use that funding that, that they've gotten for this new foundation to do that, and she's been instrumental in making that happen. When I was director of the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, which I was for a dozen of the 20 years I was there, we received funding from the Marguerite Casey Foundation. So I understood what the demands were of an organization that received funding. And then when I became the weaver, I understood what the weaver's position is because I understood the position of directors of organizations. So what Marguerite Casey did was really unique for a foundation. Basically, they were willing to fund controversial organizations, organizations that other foundations stayed away from. They were willing to fund organizations that didn't always develop programs but actually develop protests. They were willing to believe that this country needs 
a different kind of way of addressing the needs of low and moderate income families. And Margaret Casey went out of the limb and did something that really, I would say no other foundation I had experienced in all the years I've been organizing was willing to do at the level the Margaret Casey Foundation was willing to do it with a larger amount of money and to really do it in over a long-term period of time to trust that these organizations were going to make the changes. And it's at first when I heard the CEO talk about it when she first came to Chicago, I was skeptical. And I remember there was a meeting with Luce where she presented it, and I was one of the people that gave feedback. And I, I loved what she was saying, but I was skeptical because I wanted to see the words become actions. And Marguerite Casey proved that they were good with their word and proved that they acted the way they said they were going to act. It brought a ray of hope to a lot of organizations that prior to that were not able to get funding. Casey made the table bigger so that groups that may have been competing before had to come to a table and get to know one another and then talk about joint strategy. So the network is crucial to the success of movement building. Change is all we have. We could guarantee that no matter what's going to happen, it's going to change. Now, the question is always, which way is it going to change? And so I, my experience has been that I have seen change happen in places and situations that I didn't think was possible. And the key to that change is to get the hope that something different could happen. And the way that that starts to happen is people get together on small issues and start working and get some success on small issues. And once people feel the power of winning something very locally, they start dreaming big. The Revolution Will Be Local, a movement-building podcast, has been brought to you by the Marguerite Casey Foundation. Our strategy is to nurture a national movement of low-income families advocating on their own behalf for social and economic justice. For two decades, Marguerite Casey Foundation has championed the power of movement building, allocating resources to cornerstone organizations through multi-year general support that has helped them build a movement that spans regions, issues, ethnicities, demographics, and generations. To learn more about the foundation and its work, please visit caseygrants.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to leave us a rating or a review.